Ephesians chapter four, beginning at verse one. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow up so that it builds up in love. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father in heaven, as we come now uh, to your word, we ask for the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask you to work in us and, and impart the reality that the Bible describes. Uh, when we read the Bible, we don't want to just be um, reading a, a, an account of something that is way in the past or way distant from us. Um, when we read the Bible, we want to be reading an account of something that you are doing within us. And so we ask you to do that. Um, we ask for clear thinking and, and, and clear understanding. And we ask you to do within us what only you can do, that you would miraculously change our hearts, change our minds, change us from the inside out so that we resemble Jesus and do whatever it takes to get that done and do so now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, friends, um, please turn back to page seven. We're going to be looking at that uh, reading from Ephesians. We're only going to be reading um, or looking at just a couple verses uh, today. We're going to be in that reading for some time. We're picking up in Ephesians just where we left off before Christmas. Um, and today, Emmanuel, we get to talk about character. And in particular, this is what we need to see. Um, we as a church need to pursue a united culture of character that resembles and reflects the character of God. Now, let me try to set this up for just a second. Um, we are exactly right now halfway through uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So you remember that the Apostle Paul, about 2,000 years ago, wrote this letter to a group of churches around the city of Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. And in this letter, the Apostle Paul, who is presently imprisoned in Rome, he's been explaining 
at least two things. On the one hand, he's been explaining what is it that Christians believe? And on the other hand, he's going to spend a lot of time explaining uh, how is it that Christians are supposed to live? Now, the first three chapters uh, covers everything that we were talking about this past fall, everything leading up to Christmas. And every all of that was Paul describing the first question, what is it that Christians believe? And you, if you were with us, you, you, you'll remember, hopefully, <laughs> don't know if you'll remember or not, but I'll tell you. Um, in those first three chapters, the Apostle Paul told a big, grand, cosmic story. And it's a story that begins before the foundation of the world, before the beginning of the world. The Apostle Paul says that before anything existed, God had a plan. And his plan was to not only create the world, but to live in unity and love with humanity. The trouble is, and this comes out particularly in chapter two, the trouble is that humanity, every single one of us, chapter two says is dead in our trespasses and sins. What does that mean? Well, one way to think of it is that all of humanity, according to the Apostle Paul, we all ended up being insurrectionists against God. Now, uh, I realize that the word insurrection is a really hot word right now. And I use it very intentionally. Because the word insurrection is a perfect way to grasp the idea of sin in the Bible. Um, friends, sin in the Bible, it's not just being naughty. It's not just, um, uh, you know, breaking an arbitrary rule every now and then. Sin in the Bible is insurrection against God. So God's in charge, but we try to overthrow God and we try to put ourselves in God's place. So when you look at the ugliness of insurrection that, you know, a few weeks ago, um, you look at that and you're outraged, and I hope you are, um, then understand that that is the same ugliness that's going on in our hearts when we sin against God. But then it's more than that, because when we revolt against God, insurrectionists almost always end up turning on each other, too. And so we do that, too. So humanity rejects God, and then we, and then we end up uh, uh, revolting against one another as well. And that's why the Bible tells the story that humanity is a long and tragic tale of shattered relationships. And you can look within your own heart, and you know that's true. Okay, but the Apostle Paul, earlier in Ephesians, says that actually... God had a plan from the beginning, even for the insurrectionists. In fact, they were kind of gathered up into God's remarkable plan. And he planned to send Jesus Christ. Jesus is going to be the, the climax of the entire story. And Jesus, fully God and fully human, lived among us. But the problem was humanity played our usual role and we uh, played the insurrectionist and we rebelled even against Jesus and we killed him and we put him up on the cross. But yet once again, argues the Apostle Paul, that was part of God's plan. Jesus died, but he didn't stay dead. And Jesus's death opened up a door of reconciliation. Jesus's death opened up a doorway for amnesty, for humanity, for the insurrectionists, for sinners, so that, so that we could be reconciled through Jesus to God. And then we could also, through Jesus, be reconciled to one another. And this is just the, the turning point in the whole plan that the apostle has been trying to describe, that Jesus can reverse both our revolt against God and our revolt against one another. Thus, he makes peace. 
a peace that the world desires but can never achieve. But then there's more to the plan because uh, Jesus, according to the Apostle Paul in chapter two and three, uh, takes all of us who are reconciled to God and then unites us in something called the church. Um, he wants to build us together into a community of reconciliation. And part of the reason that that's very, very important is that um, when the world looks at the church, when the world looks at this community of reconciliation that Jesus has uh, built, they're supposed to get an insight into who God is. The world is supposed to be able to look at the church and get an insight into God's wisdom, chapter three. They're supposed to get an insight into God's big and wise plan for reconciling everything through Jesus Christ. Okay, breathe. A little bit of, fire, of a fire hose there, but we had to do some review. All that was review. But now the question for the next three chapters beginning here is, if all of that is true, what then do we do? If God's big plan for reconciliation has been rolled out in Jesus, and if we are beneficiaries of that plan of reconciliation, then what are we supposed to do about it? What are we supposed to do? What's our role in the plan? And that's the question hanging over verse one. Take a look at verse one. Paul says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Pause. That's it. Our role, if you are a beneficiary of Jesus's reconciliation, if you have been reconciled to Christ, through Christ to God, then our role is to walk or live in a manner worthy of this massive story of reconciliation. All right, but does that help? What does that mean, right? <clears throat> what does it look like to walk worthy? Now, I don't know what you expect, but I expect that that's gonna require like heroism, like something harrowing. Um, because Paul, has been building up to this point. Paul has said that God gave his son and Jesus voluntarily uh, uh, suffered to rescue us from our insurrection. I mean, that is, like you look at Jesus, that is hugely heroic. And therefore I expect that if I need to live my life in a manner worthy of that kind of heroism, that it's gonna require heroism of me, something really powerful. And then when you look at verse one, Paul is writing this to us from prison, which that's heroic. Like he's imprisoned by the Romans. He's suffering for the cause. He's writing to Christians. This is like the letter from the Birmingham jail, which by the way, not part of the sermon, but everybody should read that tomorrow. This is like getting a, a letter from Nelson Mandela when he was in prison for all that time. It's like you expect that it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a rousing call to action. And then I get verse two. Take a look at verse two. We, I expect heroism. We get character. I, got, I was a little underwhelmed when I got to verse two. I mean, I was like, character? Like, I, I was looking for swashbuckling. And I got, I got character. Okay. That just shows how foolish I am. Okay. Do you remember just a minute ago, I said that God wants to display something of his wisdom through the church, through this community of reconciliation. 
Now, I take that from uh, Ephesians chapter three. We talked about it weeks ago. God wants the whole world, and even in a remarkable way, uh, spiritual powers, angels and demons, I don't really know how that works, but God wants the world to be able to look at the church and see what it looks like when people are reconciled to God and reconciled to each other. Because apparently when the world or even the angels and demons see that community, they'll be able to look through that community and see something of who God is. That's part of the plan. But the only way, think with me, the only way that is ever going to work is if the church is a culture that reflects God's character. The church has to be a culture that reflects his character. But on the other hand, if we kind of say character doesn't matter that much, if we compromise on character, then we will distort God to the world. And I hope you can feel down right down to the depths of your soul what a horrific crime that is. And it's happening a lot right now and people are losing confidence in the church. And some people are losing confidence also in the God who gave his son to rescue us. And therefore, Emmanuel, it is ferociously urgent that we become a united culture of character that reflects the character of God. Can you feel the importance? All right. Now let's go and fill in some details. We're going to just basically spend all our time in verses two and three. Take a look at it. I'll start at the end of uh, verse one. Uh, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, Paul says in verse one, then verse two, here it is, focus in, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now, I want you to put yourself into the mind of a Roman for just a second. Um, if you're from the Roman empire, Roman society, um, humility and gentleness and patience and unity are like an eye roll laundry list of weakness, especially the first two humility and gentleness, like Romans had no time for those things. In fact, um, Epictetus, not Roman, but Greek, a Greek philosopher listed humility as, um, uh, in the list of character traits that you don't want. Do you don't want humility? You want other stuff like power and strength and fortitude and stuff. So, um, for instance, Tom Holland is a uh, is a historian who specializes in the Roman Empire, and he he writes this. Just listen. Tom Holland says, "Command and swagger were the very essence of the cult of the Caesars. To rule as an emperor was to rule as a victorious general." In every town, in every square, statues of Caesar served as a reminder to his subjects that rank that to rank as a son of a god was by definition to embody earthly greatness. Command and swagger. Now, Romans uh, uh, were suspicious and kind of despised uh, humility and gentleness, and they had really good reason to do, to do so. They despised humility and gentleness because Caesar despised them. All of them did. That's part of what it was to be a Caesar. And Caesars were understood widely to be the son of a god. Now, why did Caesars despise humility and gentleness? Well, 
in part, they despise them because their pagan deities despise them. Even if they didn't believe in the literal deities, they believed in the, in the, in the virtues and the set of values embodied in the Roman myths. The Roman character reflected the Roman gods, the things they valued most. And the Roman gods were all about power and self-promotion and therefore so were the Caesars and therefore so was the whole of society. Now, I say all this to point out that that's always the way it works. My character is a reflection of whatever it is I value the most. If I value strength and winning and not being a loser and accumulating power, if that's what really grips my heart, then I'm gonna admire those attributes in other people or more likely, I'm gonna envy those attributes in other people. And things like humility and gentleness will either bore me or they will revolt me. Now let me pause here and I'm gonna ask you to look at your heart. What is it that you admire in other people? What is it that you envy in other people? And what does that tell you about what matters most to your soul? Now, the Jewish community and the Christian community were some of the first groups to value humility as a good thing. And part of the reason they were the first to value uh, humility as a good thing is that they just had a different God. Tom Holland describes this, and he's, he's talking about the, the, how different Paul was in his values than the culture around him. And he says it, 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 it's described, or it, it's all accounted for in what Paul believed about Jesus. Just listen to Tom Holland again, this historian. He says this, Christ, by making himself nothing, by taking on the very nature of a slave, had plumbed the depths to which only the lowest, the poorest, the most persecuted and abused of mortals were confined. If Paul could not leave the sheer wonder of this alone, then that was because he had been brought by his vision of the risen Jesus to gaze directly into what it means for him and for all the world. The fact that Christ had become human and suffered death on the ultimate instrument of torture, the cross, was precisely for Paul the measure of his understanding of God, that God was love. Okay, Emmanuel, um, our character will reflect whatever it is we value most. Paul is calling us to value humility and gentleness and patience. Now, why? The answer is because the church, by definition, is supposed to value Christ above all. And Christ's path to glory ran through humility and gentleness. And therefore, so must ours. Now, I, let's be clear here. Humility and gentleness does not mean passivity or timidity. A lot of the Romans thought it did. A lot of us probably think it does. It doesn't. There's nothing passive or timid about Jesus. Go read any of the four Gospels, and you will not come out thinking that Jesus is either passive or timid. Jesus was courageous and assertive, but he was courageous and he was assertive for the benefit of others and at cost to himself. Now, Emmanuel, that is our path. That's what it looks like to walk worthy of the calling to which we have been called. 
we are to be a church and a culture that is courageous and assertive for the benefit of others and at cost to ourselves. And so when you see someone who claims Christ, but who spurns humility, then don't trust them too much because they're valuing something other than Jesus, irrespective of what they say. But while you're at it, don't trust yourself too much either, right? Because deep down in my heart and yours, there is, is there not? There is pride and arrogance and selfishness and bravado. And those are symptoms that tell us that we value Jesus only a little bit. And all of that has to die. And it needs to die urgently. Because pride and arrogance and selfishness and bravado, they get celebrated sometimes within the church. And when those things get celebrated within the church, usually not explicitly, but implicitly, friends, it is a cancer and it will kill us. Because it demonstrates that we are worshiping something other than Jesus Christ. But when we worship Jesus then we will find ourselves valuing humility and gentleness. And so I ask you, as I ask myself, do we, do we value humility and gentleness? Do you love it? Do we aspire to it? Do we admire humility and gentleness in others? Friends, those questions will open up windows into the depths of your soul. And those questions will tell you something about what it is that you're really worshiping. Now let's keep going because the same is true of patience. Verse two, uh, we are to uh, walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And then verse two, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Let me ask you a question uh, that's kind of abrupt and that you probably don't expect. How would you describe the character of God as God is presented in the Old Testament? I would love, I'd love to take a poll on that within our church. We're, we're not gonna, I know Zoom can't, but we're, we're not gonna do that right now. Anyways, I'd love to know how you answer that question. But if you read through the Old Testament, one of the maybe surprising things that you'll find is that one of the most important ways the Old Testament describes God is to say that God is patient. And the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses this same word that Paul uses in the Greek. God is described as patient or long-suffering or slow to anger. Now, once again, Greek culture didn't use this word that much. But for the Jewish community and for the Christian community, patience was a word that captured how God had walked with his people. So if you look through the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, all through the Old Testament, God walked with his people, the people of Israel, and God walked with them despite the fact that they regularly turned on him. They regularly, the people of Israel, regularly ended up being insurrectionists against God. And when that happens, God disciplined them, but God never gave up on them. And God displayed his love by patiently bearing with them for the long haul. Now, here's the thing. If that's part of God's character, then that gets to be part of how we relate to each other. And friends, patience sounds easy when it's on the page. It feels hard when it's in your soul. Um, 
let's let me let me point something out. Um, I'm I'm hearing a fair amount of people saying that they're kind of ready to give up on the church. Not 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 so much like ready to throwing up their hands at Emmanuel in particular, but kind of like the wider church. There's there's talk about people just kind of giving up on the church, the, the wider church. And I gotta say, I I, I kind of get it. Uh, if I'm honest, I'm I'm an Anglican. You might have noticed that. Um, and uh, as Anglicans, um, we kind of live where the Catholic tradition and the evangelical tradition and the mainline tradition all kind of intersect, um, which means we can see the church is a mess at pretty much all its bits. And, uh, you know, you, you get a little peek into how the sausage is made and check it out. It looks like sausage sometimes. The church is a mess. But here's the thing, Emmanuel. Don't give up on the church. Don't give up on each other. And I can hear somebody is coming back at me and saying, hey, well, what are you talking about? Why? The church is crazy. The church is part of the problem that we're dealing with. It's infiltrated with people like fill in the blank. The church, I can imagine somebody saying, is hopelessly hypocritical. And if that's what's going on in your heart or in your friend's heart, I would say respond by saying, yeah, I know. I know. Come on. Get it all out. Let's go. Yep. Yes. Okay. You done? Don't give up on the church. And don't give up on each other either. Why? Because that's what love looks like. I mean, Jesus knows the church is a mess. Goodness. He came to the mess. He, became, he came because we were a mess. But he doesn't give up on the church. He loves the church. He disciplines the church. Don't get me wrong. Read the book of Revelation, especially the first three chapters, and you will find Jesus, how Jesus responds to his church when it has gone astray. Jesus disciplines the church. That's part of his love. But this is part of how you know that Jesus is not a hypocrite when he talks about love. Like if you and I talk about love a lot, love, I mean, all we need is love, right? It's easy to talk about love. But if we talk about love a lot and then we give up on the church, then we will prove that we are as guilty of the same hypocrisy as everybody else. We are guilty of the same hypocrisy that we're so outraged in other people. But if you love Jesus and if you've been loved by Jesus, then don't give up on the church. Because Jesus doesn't give up on you. And instead of giving up, do verse three. Check it out. Instead of giving up, do verse three, be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now, you see the word eager? Um, eager in the original means something like this. Uh, pursue unity with the urgency you feel when you're in the middle of a crisis. Pursue unity with the same urgency that you feel when, you're, when your finger is, is shaking and you're trying to dial 911. Wow. How do we do that? How do we pursue unity? Well, we'll kind of find out in the rest of the book of Ephesians how, how to pursue unity, but here's the short answer. We have to cultivate churches that join together Christian doctrine with Christian character. So sometimes Christians are tempted to pursue unity by downplaying Christian doctrine, um, but we can't do that. And the reason we can't do that is because of verses uh, four, five, and six. Take a look at verse 
four, five, and six. We're not going to go into them in great detail, but you see all the ones, uh, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of us all. Do you see that? That's like shorthand Paul, Paul's way of shorthand uh, summarizing all of Christian doctrine. He's kind of summarizing the doctrines of chapters one, two, three. He's summarizing that in verses four, five, and six in our reading. But part of the point is that you can't have unity without being on the same page on the fundamentals of Christian doctrine. Who is Jesus? What has he accomplished for us? And what does it mean to repent and follow him? Those are the things we've, we've got to be on the same page on if we're going to be one congregation. And so we urgently pursue unity in doctrine, but at the same time, actually not but, and at the same time, and with the same urgency, we express that doctrine through transformed character. Unity requires both Christian doctrine and Christian character. So Emmanuel, don't give up on the church. Instead, pursue unity and pursue it with humility and gentleness. Come on, you're as big a mess as others are. And do it patiently, bear with one another. That's what love looks like when it's on the ground. In other words, we need to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which Christ has called us. Or in other words, we need to cultivate a united culture of character that reflects God's own character. Except here's the thing, and, and I've already kind of mentioned this. You know, I said earlier that I ex expected Paul to, to give us a rousing, swashbuckling, do something heroic. And then I was a bit underwhelmed by character, you know? Um, well, that's because I'm stupid. Because this sort of character demands the very highest heroism. It demands that each of us lay down our lives for people whom, frankly, it'd be easier to hate or at least just ignore. And when I look at my soul, I, man, I can't, I, I can't love people who are easy to hate. I like to hate them. I mean, come on. And every time character gets costly, Jim's heart wants to stage an insurrection against this vision and against its Lord. And are you different? And here's the happy news. Here's the happy news, ready? <laughs> we can't reflect the character of God unless, unless we turn our eyes away from ourselves. And unless we turn our eyes sometimes even away from the church and we turn our eyes away from the people whom we are desperately tempted to write off or even hate, and we turn our eyes and we lock eyes with Jesus Christ. Because then looking at Jesus Christ, we'll see the God who loved us when it would have been easier for him to hate us. We'll look at the one who, Jesus Christ, who sought peace and reconciliation and unity with the urgency of a crisis. But it wasn't his crisis. It was our crisis. You and I were hopeless insurrectionists. And Jesus Christ, when we were there, sought us out. And he patiently bore with us in love. And then he humbly and gently surrendered himself to a cross. And he suffered the penalty due to our insurrection. And then he rose again as the Lord and the King of everything for forever. So look at him 
And you'll find one who shows his love for us by patiently bearing with us in the midst of our failure. And it's when you feel yourself to be a beneficiary of that mercy, when you feel yourself down to your soul, a beneficiary of that kind of grace, that is when you will find a new power and a new motivation. And the, it's the only source for the power and the motivation that we need to reflect that character in the church and for the world. Emmanuel, we need to be renewed by Jesus Christ. We cannot be renewed in ourselves. We certainly will not be renewed by thinking highly of ourselves and looking down at others. Despite the fact that they are guilty, we are guilty too. We need Jesus. We need to be re-evangelized by Jesus. Emmanuel, if you are saved, if we will be saved, we will only be saved by the character of Christ, and that's why it matters so much. So look at him and receive his grace and reflect him in the church and for the life of the world. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.